Welcome to the Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today I am super excited, thrilled, over the moon, some might say, to welcome my next guest, the founder and chief innovation officer of Somoye LLC Hospitality Consulting, an advanced Somoye, a consultant, and a wine educator. Please welcome Eric Sagelbaum. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Rob. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you on. It's, it's good to always talk to another bespectacled person. I've been wearing glasses since I was three, so it's always good to see a fellow tribes person. So shout out to you. <laughs> I'm, here with, I'm here for it with you. You know, it's funny. I'm very, when I do educational stuff, I'm so science minded. And I always tell people, um, I earn these nerd glasses. They're very thick black rim glasses, just like yours. I'm like, I earn these nerd glasses. Get ready for some science. So uh <laughs> So again, thank you for making the time and coming on. And before we delve into like the primary topic, um, I want to give you the space to to introduce yourself to the audience and give us some insight in your background, where'd you grow up, and ultimately, you know, how'd you break into the wine and hospitality industry? So there's that chunk for you. Sure. All right. Buckle up. It's uh, it's going to be a long ride. Um, where I'm from is a curious question because I'm born in Chicago, but at a year old, I had already moved. And by the time I got to university in Philadelphia, I had lived in Fort Worth, Texas, the People's Republic of Disney, otherwise known as Anaheim, California, Toronto, Canada, where I grew up and became a dual citizen, went to college in Philly, then moved down to South Beach, Miami, then Seattle, where I'm from in my heart. Then let's see, then there was DC, back to Philly, back to DC, and now Denver is home. Uh, so I guess today I'm from Denver. Um in terms of how I got into the industry. So uh, five-year-old me got into cooking and loved it. Uh, I'm Jewish. Uh, the Jewish holidays are almost, almost everything we do in Judaism is around food. Um, and the Jewish holidays ha each have their own specific culinary traditions. And, uh, you know, no offense to my amazing mother, but, you know, being in the kitchen with her, sometimes it was because of general interest. And sometimes it was, how can I help make this better? Uh, but, the, but the reality is uh, I loved cooking. And I knew I was going to be a chef. And for my first decade in this industry, that's exactly what I did. Um, I was 13 years old. It was take your kids to work day. And instead of going to my mother's school, she was a teacher. Um, I went to the local Italian trattoria that we used to frequent and uh, told them I wanted to learn how to cook like they do. So I spent a day, you know, peeling garlic and making pizza dough and things like that. And uh, I fell in love with it. So I started going there nights and, and summers or nights, not nights, weekends and, and summer vacations to work. And uh 10 years later, I was the chef de cuisine of a fine dining tasting menu French restaurant at the Park Hyatt, Philadelphia. And I spent mo most of my culinary career in fine dining. So, you know, chefs drink a lot. It's 100% true. And and at 16 years old and 17 years old, I was drinking for alcohol. Um, certainly not legally, but, you know, whatever. Uh, and as I got older, I stopped drinking for the booze and started drinking for flavor because my palate was developing in the kitchen. And and for the latter part of my culinary career, it was all fine dining and lots of wine pairings. So at the Park Hyatt, the sommelier of that restaurant, because he was doing wine pairings, would constantly taste me on wine, say, hey, I've got a few bottles left of this. I'd like to use it for a pairing. Can we taste it and develop a dish around it? Or he would start inviting me to his wine classes. Uh, I would offer him, you know, I'll develop a dish around your wines. You develop a wine pairing around one of my dishes. And it was very mutual. So the love was there. Here's the non-sexy part. Back of the house just doesn't make the money that front of the house does. I was coming in three to four hours before front of the house, often many of those hours unpaid because it was before scheduled, but I needed to be in there to get the mise en place ready for service. I was staying three hours after them and they were making four times as much. And I put myself through college. I had crippling student loan debt. I needed money. So Hyatt offered to transfer me down to South Beach where they were opening a new luxury boutique hotel, but they only had front of the house. I was like, 
let's see, leave Philly and $14 an hour for South Beach and limitless possibilities as a front of house server. Yeah, no, I'm going to do that. Um, they offered to pay for the intro SOM certification of anyone who was interested while they were, we were waiting for the hotel to open. And I knew from my experience in back of the house that the more the, the captains knew about wine, the more money they made in tips because yeah. the higher their check average and the better the guest experience. So I was like, yep, yeah, I'm going to do that. Got my intro pin. We opened the hotel. It was the hotspot in South Beach in 2004. Good luck getting a reservation even a month out. And then within a few months of that property opening, wine director left, head sommelier was let go, and I was the only person with anything. And let's be honest, an intro pin is really nothing. And they're like, yep, you're running this place. You're running the fine dining restaurant that has a two-month wait list. You're running the the bars, the club. You're running uh, in-room dining, catering. By the way, next week, we're doing a dinner that's for South Beach Food and Wine that Francis Ford Coppola's, at the time, Rubicon Estate wines were being used. And Marcus Samuelson's doing the menu, so don't screw up the pairings uh, and go figure it out. And that was 20 years ago almost. And here I am now, pretty happy. Wow. Wow. Uh <laughs> baptism by fire and all that stuff right yeah it was rough it was rough going for a minute but it's it's honestly the best entry into front of the house that i could have hoped for because it it forced me to create systems and to learn good behaviors very early on which have sustained me through my career it's wonderful so what is the role of a sommelier in your opinion Ooh, i wrote so i'm a journalist now i write for a lot of publications and i had an article um called uh sunny defect of dear sommeliers your job isn't what you think it is because most sommeliers think their role or their job is, I love wine, therefore I study wine, I taste wine, I talk about wine, and I sell wine. Dear all sommeliers that are listening, that is not your job. None of that is your job. Here's what your job is. Your job is to sometimes create but always operate a financially secure and stable beverage program that drives gross revenue, that generates profits, that has controls and cost cost controls and measures in place with a well-trained front of house staff that can appropriately deliver the ethos of the program and assistance to guests because no sommelier can be at every table, every transaction. That's just not possible. And then when that is all done and perfectly in place, then you get to study wine, talk about wine, taste wine, sell wine. But the reality is a good sommelier doesn't sell wine. You want to take a guess? So I've been doing this for 20 years. How many how many bottles of wine do you think I've sold, Rob? I'm going to say none. God, you nailed it on the first try. <laughs> I kind of teed that up to you. Yeah, I've never sold a bottle of wine in my life. Now, I've been around thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of wine purchases, but I am not a wine salesperson. I am a wine matchmaker. Call me wine yenta. My job is to match the guests with whatever factors are important to them. The taste, the profile, the prestige, the label, the brand, the price point, the food, and whatever their scenario is that's important. Our job, as you know, it's matchmaking. It's not sales. And any sommelier that is transactional, you're never going to exist for a sustained career in this industry. Because yes, you can bend a guest over the over a barrel for a two or three hundred dollar banger bottle of wine once, but their takeaway from that experience is going to be maybe they spent more than they wanted. They felt like you were just trying to get the sale, and it really didn't enhance their experience. And maybe they'll never come back. That's not that's not how we build long standing relationships and happy guests. So so yeah, sommeliers, your job is not to sell wine. Thank you. That's 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 great. I'm I like I'm going to use all of this that I get out of this sort of interview to make myself seem fancier and more knowledgeable. <laughs> so that's that's the point. But I, I think you're right. I, I think it's a big piece where obviously I know you're right, but I think there's a big piece when you're talking about relationship building. Um, if I go to a place, 
I'm all, whatever it is, definitely the beverage program. If I'm going to a place, like I have a cocktail named after me at a local restaurant and it's really cool. And I really have a name on the menu, all of that stuff. And so when I go there, I'm always getting that. You'll see me with it in my hand. I've vetted it. I've tasted it. I know what I like. And it's kind of that. And I repeat and I go back there to get that because of the full experience. And I've never had an instance where I was being sold something. I felt like I was a guest and you're connecting me with something that eventually I'm going to dig. And I lent my name to something there. So it's collaborative. Okay, so what's a Rob Lee so I can make one at home? (laughs) If it's a Rob Roy that's made with Elmer T. Lee, then I mean, there it is right there. But uh, what's a Rob Lee? I want to make one. It's um, it's vermouth, um, a bourbon and cinnamon syrup. Very simple. Okay. All right. I'm not mad at that. People really dig it. Uh, it's, it's at a place um, in Baltimore called Forged. Um, they got some uh, beard conversation going around. Uh, right. So it's like, I have a drink. I had the most popular drink on a menu of a place that could win a James Beard Award. That is pretty awesome. And my wife's from Baltimore. So, uh, you know, there's there's that. So we have occasion to visit every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. Definitely got to pull up. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie that the namesake cocktails achievement, I'm totally not trying to compete or flex with you at all. I just want to be really clear. Um, but, uh, and if you want to, pause. If you want to cut this part out, by all means do. No, leave it up. Let's leave it up. We'll leave it up. Back into it. Um, for a long, for a while, uh, I spent a lot of time at Jose Andres's Bar Mini. Uh, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is I lived across the road, but also I think it's one of the most superlative cocktail bars in the world. And uh, shortly before I was moving away from DC, I came in, this is when they had the much larger menu with like 150 cocktails. And I came in and they're like, you might want to check out page four. And on page four was the Sagelbaum flip. They had actually put in a cocktail named after me because uh, I don't know, a few weeks before, I, I mean, I used to go like, it's the kind of place you walk in and they're already making your cocktail. They know what you want. They're already making it when they see you. Um, and that cocktail was called a ticket to Phuket, which is so good. Go to Barmini and get one. But, um, that night I was really in the mood for a flip and I'm not really into whole egg cocktails very often, yeah. but I, I was like, ah, I kind of want to flip, but I sort of just want Fernet. And I was like, what if we did a flip with Fernet and maybe some allspice dram or something to winter it up. And they're like, okay, we'll figure something out. And that's what they made. And so then they put that in print. And to this day, it is in the Think Food Group cocktail handbook. Now it's not in print anywhere, but if you are a TFG bartender and you look in their digital cocktail guide, there is the Sagelbaum flip in there. It's kind of cool. That's very cool, actually. Uh, <laughs> I, I love I love hearing that. Now I'm going to eventually have to figure out a way to make that. I'm, I'm going to get to the digital and just figure it out. It's going to be great. There you go. So what would you say are like... The, the key traits, like those key like quirks or those unique things that make like a good psalm a good psalm? <laughs> I love that question because it's not a question I'm asked very often. And I, I think it's really important to understand that in any relationship-based business, mm-hmm. your ability to foster a warm relationship is everything. And I think one of the problems with sommeliers is they're so passionate and excited about the knowledge that they have because of how hard it was to acquire that they forget that a lot of their guests just want a drink. And for many guests, like we don't, the way that we drink, we're in like less than 1% of wine drinkers, American wine drinkers. I don't mean like, like budgetary categories. I mean, people in the industry, the types of wines that we interact with. I mean, and, and, you know, I, I do so much consumer stuff and I have people be like, oh yeah, like I've heard like Camus is a good wine or like, oh, I really like Mayomi. And like, I'm not, I'm not, shitting on those brands, you know, like there's a time and a place for those. 
but certainly those aren't the types of wines I drink. And then there are people that like I go to their house and there's an open magnum of yellowtail in the fridge that's probably been open for four weeks. And I, and I, and, and it helps me reset the understanding that most American wine drinkers yeah. like the idea of a drink that happens to be alcohol, but really would be just as happy with a beer or something else. And suddenly I struggle to understand that our constituents don't care about your knowledge. Some do, but our job is not to vomit knowledge on them. Our job is to make them comfortable with a category that is absolutely to its core, a source of apprehension to most consumers of that category. Yeah. And wine is so unique in that regards. There is no other consumable product that people get nervous about. Rob, when you're ordering your, your coffee yeah. at wherever, Starbucks or La Coloma or wherever, and you order a latte and they ask you what kind of milk you want, do you get nervous that if you say the wrong kind of milk, you're going to be judged? Like, shoot, is it, I've heard almond milk is cool, but maybe, maybe I'm supposed to do oat milk because that's like the next new thing. And that's like natural or, or, but what if I just want whole milk? Are they going to laugh at me? No, but with wine, oh, sure. Yeah. Right. We can do that with anything. I don't know any beer drinkers that get nervous that they're going to order a Kolsch and they're going to get laughed at that they should have ordered a Saison, right? But with wine, people get so apprehensive. So to answer your question, uh, the characteristics of a good sommelier is to understand that it's not about you, it's about them. Mm -hmm. And that most people are either immensely uncomfortable with the category or just want to swing around and show off their knowledge, which often usually those tend to be the least knowledgeable people. I call them wine siths. They deal in absolutes. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Chardonnay is the best. Don't you agree? <laughs> or I have a hundred bottles of this in my cellar. Or my favorite is I drink Opus and Insignia and Screaming Eagle. What do you have that's like that for $50? You know, but my, my point is yeah. our job is to translate not what the guests are saying, what's behind what they're saying in a way that makes them feel comfortable. And for some people that comfort is, yeah, let me massage you and tell you, yes, that's the best Chardonnay ever. And, oh, I love it, but we just happen to not have it here. Right. And for some people it's like, Hey, it's just moldy grape juice. I've devoted my life to it. So you don't have to, and you don't have to worry and don't apologize to me that you don't have wine knowledge, by the way, that's my job security. So please never <laughs> to a sommelier that you don't know, right? That's why if everybody could do this, we, we wouldn't even be here doing this podcast, right? So good sommelier can help make people comfortable with the category. And when you do that, the revenue comes, but if that's your goal, you're not a good sommelier. The last thing I'll say, sorry, Rob, I should have warned you. You asked me questions. You asked me what time it is. I'm going to tell you how to build a clock. Right? <laughs> but, uh, but the last thing I'll say is that if you are a sommelier, no matter how excited you are about your program and a guest says, what do you recommend? And you start recommending wines. You are not a good sommelier and you are fundamentally doing a disservice to your guests mm. because the whole list is your recommendations. That's why you wrote it. Right. And if you didn't write the list, hopefully there's enough things on there that you're excited about, but it is not about you. It is about them. So when a guest says, what do you recommend? The only response should be, let's have a conversation about the kind of things you like. Yeah. And then I will recommend the things that make sense for you because I love Lopez de Heredia's Rosé, of which the current vintage is what, 2012, I want to say. But to many guests, a decade plus old, kind of earthy, kind of lanolin and wet wool and not very floral and not very perfumey Rosé might not be their cup of tea. But for me, I love it. But if I just recommend Lopez and they spend $160 on a Rosé, which might be way out of their category of spend, and then they don't like it. What have I really done for them except make them feel bad? So, right. Psalms, get an idea of what guests like before you start making recommendations. That's 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 great. I mean, 
Now, again, you know, I feel like I go in there, I go to, you know, try like a wine, going back to one of the things you touched on earlier. I remember when I was uh, first started dating my partner, what have you, I was doing one of those like wine clubs. I was like, let me just have a bunch of bottles come in. I need to try a bunch so I can feel like I know a lot. So when we go on on dates, I can look like I know something. And uh, and that was that was kind of the move. And then she was like, yeah, I don't drink red. I was like, oh, that is two thirds of what I purchased and really trying to like figure out the whole process. Now it's kind of like we're very standard if we go out. It's like she's looking for something that's dry, probably rosé. Occasionally she's going to do a Riesling. That's kind of what it is. And I'm going to order the same thing or an old fashioned. That's just kind of what happens. Yeah. I mean, and and like. Like, how dare we tell people what they should or shouldn't like or should or shouldn't drink? I, I think that's one of the problems I have with our industry by and large. And it's not just sommeliers. It's not just people who are on the sales side of wine. It's also people that are on the 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 consumption side of wine. Like, again, I'm big on analogies. So, I, I, you know, people sometimes like, oh, well, I really like wine X or wine Y. And I'm not talking about winery. I'm talking about variety or, or yeah. region or whatever. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Um, and the example I'll use is most Cabernet Sauvignon drinkers really like Syrah. They're just so enamored with the idea of Cabernet Sauvignon as a brand due to false signals of luxury, or that's what their parents drank, or that's what their bosses drank, or that's what gets the top scores in pick a reviewing publication, right? That they think they're supposed to drink Cabernet. And I've spent most of my career in restaurants with fine dining steakhouses uh, under me. You know, the last restaurant group I was with, I was the corporate beverage director for Stephen Starr. And we had a number of fine dining steakhouses in Philly and in DC and in New York and all that. So my whole life, I've spent a lot of time in steakhouses. And whenever, you know, I ask a guest like, oh, you know, may I offer assistance with your wine selection? And they're like, oh yeah, well, I'm having steak. So I should have Cabernet. I'm like, perfect. Tell me what you love about Cabernet. And 999 times out of a thousand, they write a master sommelier quality tasting note for Syrah. Maybe it's Northern Rhone Syrah, maybe it's Washington State Syrah, maybe it's Australian Shiraz, but they're not describing Cabernet. They've right. been programmed mm. to know that Cabernet is the thing, and therefore that's what they drink. But really, that's not what they want to be drinking. They just accept it as this is what I'm supposed to drink. And another example, and this one really gets me. So, you know, no offense to hipsters out there, but natural wine. Oh, I've my. Yeah, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I firmly, first of all, let me preface this by saying I firmly believe that there is a difference between natural wine and wine made naturally, mm. right? So I'm talking about dogmatically natural wine. The idea that there is a whole generation of sommeliers that are basically convincing consumers that if they don't like a wine that might be massively flawed, mousy, foxy, mercaptains, uh, VA, volatile acidity out the wazoo, um, spontaneous referment, like acetobacter, all these flaws that can happen. Because let's face it, nature doesn't make wine. It makes vinegar. Humans make wine. And it's fundamentally irresponsible to throw grapes in a vessel and say, this is wine and we're not going to stabilize it. We're not going to make sure that every bottle in this case tastes the same. We're not going to make sure it, it lasts. We're just going to say, this is natural. And if you don't like it, there's something wrong with you. I have a huge, huge problem with that. So like, how dare we tell people you should like this because it's natural, like it because it's good. And by the way, there are so many delicious natural wines. I'm not shitting on the category, right? They're I mean, just like they're great organic wines and great biodynamic wines like that. They are organic or natural biodynamic makes them neither good nor bad winemaking and vineyard source and all that makes them good or bad. So, so this whole idea of telling people what they should like or drink, I think is absurd. We should listen as an industry to what people like and then guide them, be their lighthouses that guide them through those stormy seas into calm waters. 
Thank you. And uh, you, you you made me uh, remember this this sort of instance where I think I bought a bottle, the first bottle actually of natural wine that I purchased, and and it was like I think it was like a sixty dollar bottle, and we were me, me and my partner were leaving town, so we had that bottle. But it was like this is the only alcohol we have, you know, it's kind of that. So we ended up popping. I was like, this is vinegar. I just looked at. I was like, this is vinegar. So I ended up DMing the uh, the, the people we bought it from. I was like, yeah, the wine wasn't good, Jay. And we ended up like like coming back and, you know, we had to bottle all of that stuff. And I was like, eh, we got to fix this. We got to make this a better situation. Right. Like, what can we what can we do here? Can we just get something that's like levels below us? Because for whatever reason, you know, they just felt like, no, this is this is really good. Maybe it's your taste. Maybe, maybe you ate something weird with it and, and so on. And. You know, they didn't have a sense of like, I'm six, four. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I'm going to get that bottle, the one up there I actually want. And then you're just going to like, just comp it because I didn't like that experience. Maybe it's because wine tastes different at altitude and you're so damn tall. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but, you, but therein, therein lies the absolute problem that is current in our industry, right? They're trying to convince you that if you don't like a thing that they like, there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Rob, what's your favorite color? Gray, actually. Well, maybe there's just something wrong with the way you see the world because everybody knows red is the best color. And the fact that you don't like it means you just haven't learned enough. Maybe maybe your glasses are a little dirty right now. Maybe if we clean your glasses and teach you about color spectrums, you'll like red a little bit better, right? Nobody would say that, but that's what they said to you in the wine equivalency. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it's just one of those things where I think, you know, in doing this and, and just, just really being resolute in my perspective on things. I immediately was like, no, no, that's that's not what it what this is right here. I was like, I know what my taste buds are telling me. And I have very good taste buds. I can just pick out certain things that are in things, um, flavor profile, especially in coffee, because I'm a coffee snob. Um, so going going back a little bit, um, you know, uh your your experience um being 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 a chef. So how like, you know, for 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 those that don't really get the sort of connection. How does that help you in your, your work in as a sommelier? How does that help you in your work as a like wine educator? Basically, all the million things that you're doing. How does that sort of foundational background support what you're doing now? So it was absolutely instrumental in my success as a sommelier. Uh, first of all, I just want to take a very connected tangent here and say this. Sommeliers are not inherently better at tasting or smelling than anyone else. We're just practiced and trained. Um Vivaldi wasn't born composing symphonies. Michael Jordan didn't exit the womb and and hit a three-point shot, right? These are things that are learned. They're skills that are practiced. Now, granted, some people might be more musically inclined or more have generally more athletic ability, but they didn't just start that way. It still took practice. Sommelier's palate is practice. That being said, as a chef, I spent a decade expanding my palate and my lexicon of flavors and structures understanding acidity, understanding body, understanding texture, understanding every possible flavor under the sun. I mean, I could probably name a hundred different apples I've tasted in my life, right? So that helped set me up for absolute success in transitioning to a sommelier. Not that I'm a better taster, that I have a bigger library of tastes. And there is one, you know, one incident I like to cite with my uh, ex-girlfriend years and years and years ago. I was tasting a wine. She's like, what do you taste? And I was like, this is like, uh, ripe Morello cherry, roasted mission fig, baked damson plum. And she's like, I don't know what any of those things are. Explain <laughs> this in terms that I would understand. And I was like, no, go out and taste more things. And that's how the fight started. And now she's max. Um, but not, not that's not the reason, trust me. But, but the point is this, 
for me, that was the most vivid explanation. And the only explanation, it's like saying, explain the taste of salt, but without describing it as salty, equate salt to something else. It's like, I can't salt is salty. And if right. you've never had salt, and you don't know what salt tastes like. I don't know how to, I, there's no way I can tell you what salty is like. It's like in any other way. And for me, it's the same thing with flavors. So have, having, having access to this giant inventory of flavors and structures and, and, and culinary elements did two things. Number one, and made it really easy for me when it came to wine tasting. For instance, in my version of, of the wine world, if we're talking about classic representations of these two regions, Chablis and Vouvray are identical in every way except for the apple component. To me, the apple, well, and Chablis, you know, there's a little bit more, but like Vouvray from like more Silex style soils, you know, uh, or more Tufa soils, right? Not to get really granular, but but we're talking about, you know, for those that are listening that are not like Tom's, you know, 100% Chardonnay from Burgundy on a very special type of chalky soil full of fossilized dead sea creatures versus 100% Chenin Blanc from a different type of chalky soil in the Loire Valley. But for me, structurally the same, acid the same, even that lemony acidity, all the non-fruit elements, the florality, the savoriness, everything is the same. But for Chablis, it's like unripe Granny Smith apple skin. And for uh, Vouvray, it's like very ripe, golden, delicious apple skin, flesh, juice. To me, that is the only differentiation point of those two wines if they're classic. But if you don't have a really vibrant apple lexicon, then you might not even be able to discern those differences, right? Yeah. So that helped me on the being a good psalm side. And then when it came to food and wine pairings, I had a tremendous understanding of, of culinary components. And also I speak chef, which means I can read a dish's description because fun fact, generally when we have to do wine pairings, we get a menu, but we don't get to try it. So I can read a menu description and know what the techniques are, what the background flavors will be, the thing that is a minor component that's going to be major, mm -hmm. the you know the the techniques that that might be used in there that might alter flavors, and that makes food and wine pairing a lot easier for me than coming at it without a culinary background. Wow, I am I'm, like again, I'm learning so much. I'm 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 happy about this right now. I must say, yeah, I must say, too. let's and, do this every week. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I'll say like. The, the the one of the major comparisons is it's how we see coffee and wine are connected. That's just the the sort of experience, especially the type of folks that I talk to. Like obviously you're deep, deep, deep into your background and 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 wine knowledge and food knowledge and all of that. And you know I've talked to like a lot of coffee snobs. I recently have a coffee that came out, um, and that's oh, I got to try that because I'm a coffee snob too. Well, there you go, in Baltimore. It uh, so so in it, you know, doing cuppings and things of that nature. And I was like, oh wow, and having sort of that that conversation with like a person that. Really really, you know, is in part of the roasting process and, and works with the, you know, the people that are providing the beans source and all of that. And I remember talking with them, feeling a little like nervous of, I don't know what my tongue should be telling me. He's like, what is it telling you? And, and I was like, that's the way I'm going to approach it now. 100%. When I try anything, what am I tasting? Not what someone is telling me they're tasting and feeling like, oh, I'm not good enough here. I don't, I don't have a class here, what have you, and being able to move through. That's what I'm hearing from you. So hundred percent. Oh, and for what it's worth, coffee is even more complex, has more subtleties of complexity than wine does. Um, but I'm with you. Uh, but coffee is, you know, like I'm also, I, I think snob's the wrong word, but I'm very, I take my coffee very seriously. And uh, for me, like there's like when I'm helping people understand wine in terms of coffee, to me, there's a very center line divide of coffee styles 
if I'm trying to like umbrella bulk things, one is those that are more torrefaction driven, the caramel, the, the toast, the smoke, the chocolate, the coconut, and the all of that. And then there's the bright citrus side of things where it's the floral, the lemons, the, the, the zests and oils of citrus fruits and stuff that lean them. And to me, those are the two galvanizing directions. And then we go deep from there. Wine is kind of the same if we're talking about really intense, full-bodied, structural extract concentrated wines versus more brighter, fresher. I don't even, I don't necessarily mean lighter, but like fresher, brighter uh, wines. And to me, those, those are the, that's the exact center line of, of division and coffee and in wine. It's, it's, there's so much parallel there. So, and thank you. I got two more real questions because I definitely want to get these in. Um, what is sommelier and what is good song? So let's talk about it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So my first company is Sommelier, uh, S-O-M-L-Y-A-Y, uh, which was born, it was my license plate um, because I wanted a vanity plate and I got so tired of people mispronouncing it. Oh, you're the Samarnier, the Somalian, the 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 Samarnier, <laughs> my favorite one, or Samelier. And I was like, it's Sommelier, but also my personality is pretty... Uh, pretty up there. I think that's, that's come out in this, you know, so someone, yay. Uh, so that's my sort of everything encapsulating consulting agency. So I do uh beverage program builds, rebuilds, financial check-ins. Uh, that's my educational arm. So I'm Smithsonian's educator. I do a monthly digital class, uh, with tasting for, you know, a few, few hundred, you know, four or 500 consumers a month. Um, which if you're interested, uh, promoting the Smithsonian, not so much me, um, the kit pickup location is in DC. So if anyone's listening and is in the DMV area and wanted to participate, you can register uh, with Smithsonian Associates They're every month they're on a different theme. Your registration includes six or seven two ounce samples of really exciting wines. And then we also have a retail partner if you want to buy the wines after the fact. Um, but we, I can also ship them to anywhere in the country. So if you're interested, Rob, hopefully you'll put up my contact details in the, uh, in the show. And uh, you can reach out to me if you need me to ship them. Otherwise, you can register and pick them up in D.C. Um, so, so it's my educational arm. It is my journalistic arm. I write for Wine Enthusiast, Wine Spectator, Food & Wine Magazine, Psalm Journal, Tasting Panel, 750 Daily, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So both trade and consumer publications. I do educational things for regional organizations. I'm the ambassador of Wines of Israel for the U.S., I, edu I educate for Beaujolais, Portugal, um, Languedoc. Oh my God, there's so many. Bordeaux, Champagne, uh, Washington State wine, Virginia wine. I mean, it can go on and on and on. And I do those for consumer and trade events too. I host private events, digital or in-person for corporate clients, for in-home wine tastings. I do money can't buy experiences in wine regions all over the world. Really oh, private seller acquisitions, liquidations, vetting, valuations, Everything you can think of related to wine except working service and restaurants. That's sommelier. Nice. Good Psalm is my about to launch wine club, www.goodsom.com, G-O-O-D-S-O-M-M. -O -O um, that is my solution for kind of, Rob, really everything we've just talked about. <laughs> I find that wine clubs are problematic. And I'm not talking about winery allocation lists here. I'm talking about consumer wine clubs or what you were saying, you were joined, you joined a wine club and they're just sending you wine every month. Number one, most of the current wine clubs at every price point are predicated on some overt or implied version of don't be tricked by a wine snob. 
you know, someone like me or Rob in spend in wasting money on wine because wine is cheap and good wine can be $10, which is absolutely true. Uh, it can be $10. One of my favorite wines is five bucks at Trader Joe's, right? Wine doesn't need to be expensive, but these wine clubs are all about don't be tricked by snobs uh, uh, to spending money on wine and you can get six bottles of wine for $40 a month and it's going to be great wine. But the only way they can make profit on that is if they're using either shiners or white labels. So shiners are bottles that are bottled but not labeled by a winery that maybe just they weren't happy with the quality of the wine or they made too there was too much leftover that they just threw in a bottle and you can buy for very cheap and then you can slap your own label on it and white labels are you can buy bulk juice you can create you can register a brand name in napa valley so that legally could say bottled in napa mm -hmm. and a consumer that doesn't know sees napa and they think it's from napa valley but really it's 40 or 50 tons an acre Sangiovese from Armenia, right? That, and no offense to Sangiovese or to Armenia, they, you know, great grape and great wine producing region, but like it's not high quality production wine. It's just massive bulk wine that mm. tastes like virtually nothing, but they label it as Napa and therefore you think as a consumer you're getting a good deal. I've tried wines from these wine clubs. I won't name their names. They're at best largely undrinkable, as Rob, I'm sure you experienced. Yes. They also have manipulative marketing that try to convince consumers that wine is inherently evil and bad for you and that nobody cares about you but them and everybody else's wine is a toxic sludge um, that they're just trying to steal your money, right? Fuck that. The other problem I have with wine clubs is they all lack community, experience, discovery, and lifestyle components. So Good Psalm is my solution for that. Every month, kind of like my Smithsonian, um, there's a theme. You'll receive five bottles on the theme. And then I've built the packaging to have room for bonus materials, lifestyle materials, things that I like in my life. Maybe not even wine or alcohol adjacent. One month, you might get a sample of my favorite skincare brand and a discount code for that. One month, you'll get a recipe from my culinary days. As an example, if you eat shellfish, never throw away your shrimp tail, shrimp shells, or lobster shells, or crab shells. Put those in a Ziploc bag in your freezer. And when that bag is full, you make a stock with only white aromatics. You know, you're thumbs upping me because you know, you know where I'm going with this, right? White carrots, parsnip, fennel is the key, right? Only onion, only white aromatics, bay leaf, whatever, whatever. And the key is Pernod. You add Pernod to that. And then you get this delicious fish fumet or fish stock that makes amazing risottos, crab boils, anything you wanted you do with seafood, you use, you just keep in your freezer and you can use it, right? So one month I'll send a little mini bottle of Pernod in that recipe. One month I'll send, I don't know, a, a little mini of some spirit that I like and the recipe for the Rob Lee or whatever it is, or the Sago Bomb Flip, who knows? <laughs> my, my point is there's a lifestyle component. And lastly, Look, I'll be honest, I will probably be the most expensive wine club there. Actually, my boy, Will Blackman, just started MVP Wine. He's going to be a little bit more expensive, which is fine by me. But it's not going to be inexpensive because if you just want five bottles of alcohol, Good Sum's not the club for you. You can get five bottles of wine cheaper. What you're paying for is not just the liquid. It's the the community, the experience, the educational videos, the access to my massive library of of, of videos and articles and, and the community building things. But ultimately, this is where do you go when you care about wine? you have a disposable income and you want to take the next step in your wine journey, but you want some guidance. That is good song. It is me in wine club form in a way that makes wine accessible, approachable, fun. So as an example, um, every month shipment, there'll be like a 60 to 90 second video on each for each of the wines. So if all you want to do is grab this bottle for the night and watch the 60 second video. So you and your partner or you and your dinner guests can just talk, know a little bit about what the wine is. 
There you go. 60 seconds of your life or drink it without watching that video. Then there'll be like a larger, longer video, 10, 15 minutes on the aggregate theme. Once a month, I'll do a live tasting and ask me anything, but there'll be all sorts of interior community events and community access to things. Like I'm, I've just finished filming a series of 30 green screen videos. They're kind of, they're sort of animations and sort of meant to be like a fun take on like a, um, uh, what's called like an airline safety video, yeah. but in a fun kind of enjoyable way. Everything from what makes a red wine red to the my the sulfite soapbox. By the way, nobody's ever been allergic to sulfites. I promise, sulfites aren't your problems. Uh, that's a whole long conversation, but there's a video on that, you know. Um, or the how oak works, or the science of taste, or uh, Burgundy 101, or understanding Bordeaux in four minutes or less. You know, like, it's all sorts of things. So part of Good Psalm is you get access to this library of let's make wine fun and approachable and not scary. Thank you and. Yeah. You, you've you've gotten it all somehow you've you've answered all the questions uh mm -hmm. all the real questions and i mean i feel like i've learned some stuff during this conversation and i hope oh, the listeners man. have as well thank you so much this has been dope oh thank you so let me hit you up real quick with these five rapid fire questions don't overthink them i'm just going to start shooting them out there you know here's the first one what winds you up ah oh old riesling <laughs> Okay, you're, you're gonna like this one. You're gonna like the next one. Oh, hang on, hang on. That winds me up in a good way. Inefficiency winds me up in a bad way. And wine sits like people <laughs> feel in absolutes. Thank you. Yeah. Now you don't like the way this this turn phrase goes. How do you like to wind down with wine and my wife and my dog? Um, honestly, I'm so digitally overloaded mm. and so high energy that uh, my guilty pleasure is Candy Crush. And I like nothing more than watching uh, trashy reality TV. Like I worked on a yacht, so Below Deck makes me very happy. I used to be a chef, so we love Top Chef. Yeah. Uh, haven't quite gotten into Housewives, but uh, but just you know, sitting on the couch with my wife and a glass of wine and Candy Crush and my my pup Neviolo is like that's there's nothing better than that. Ten on ten. Um, so you're a rather dapper individual. I've seen a lot of pictures. What what is a clothing accessory that you like obsess over? Pocket squares, no question. I will never wear a sport coat and not a pocket square, and I almost always wear sport coats, 100% pocket squares. And I used to wear a lot more bow ties, uh, but now that I don't have as much occasion to wear ties, but yeah, pocket square, but also shoes. Uh, I In our closet, I've got probably three or four times the amount of shoes as my wife does. I've got the big side. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we, we were joking a little bit earlier about color. What is your favorite color? I wish I had one. It depends on my mood in the season, but I'd say purples, blues, and greens in general make me very happy. I dig it. And lastly, this is the last one I got for you. Um, so aside from one, what is your cocktail of choice? Are you a cocktail guy? Oh, God, yeah, I'm a cocktail guy. Maybe now's a good time to tell you I'm also launching a canned cocktail brand to solve for the fact that canned cocktails largely suck or they're way too sweet. And uh, with as much time as I spend in sky tubes where I would happily pay for a decent Negroni or espresso martini or in hotels or at stadiums and events and venues and all that stuff. So, yeah, that's coming soon. I mean, we're in, we're in development now. We don't even have a name yet, but we'll be starting with Negronis and espresso martinis. So, yes, I'm very into cocktails. Um, I like to do a Mediterranean Negroni. I modify it. So the standard the standard one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one of sweet vermouth, um, Campari, or pick your favorite red bitters, and uh, and gin. Yeah. I use Mediterranean gin like Gin Mare um, or Foxtail from Portugal. I use um, Yazaguire. I can never pronounce it. Sorry, my Spanish friends. Yazaguire vermouth from Spain. Um, usually Campari or Cafo or some other Italian red bitters. 
but the secret, I, I do the standard one-to-one to run ratio, but then I add a half ounce of Strega, which is an Italian saffron liqueur. And that gives it such an incredible lift. Um, so that's, that's been, if you follow me on Insta, you probably see versions of my Mediterranean Negroni every once in a while on there. Um, so that's a fun one, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to be putting it out there. Thanks to, um, you know, house of the dragon. I have to make the sparkling house on occasion. <laughs> so now I, now I have a new little, new little extra flourish to put in there. Cause I'm vermouth daddy. I love vermouth. So, uh, especially sweet vermouth. So yeah. that's, that's pretty much it. Um, so one, I want to thank you for coming on to this podcast. It's been enjoyable. It's been a treat. And, um, two, um, this is the shameless plug portion. I want to invite and encourage you to again, plug away tell the folks where to check you out, where to check everything that you're doing out. The floor is yours. All right. Thank you. First of all, Rob, this has been such a blast. Like we can do this once, once a month, if you'll have me, <laughs> you probably know I'm not going to run out of things to say. I mean, let's do a fashion and wine thing next. Let's pair outfits with wines. I mean, like sky's the limit or <laughs> let's, let's, let's create identities for certain types of coffee regions and then associate them to wine. I mean, we can, we can do anything you want, any way you want. Um, in terms of sh- shameless, shameless self-promotion, I'm going to do this, but I want to suggest that it is promotion for more for our listeners than for me. I'm not going to pretend for a minute. If you subscribe to my wine club, I don't get a financial benefit from it, but I built that wine club for community, not for me. I'm building the can cocktail brand for other people, not for me. So can cocktails coming soon. So follow me. My Instagram is Eric for wine, E R I K the number four. If you can't spell wine, don't follow me. We're not friends. Um, but Eric for wine, then there's good some, the wine club. We are, okay, so the one thing I will say, we are waitlist only, not to be exclusive in that regard, because it's it's meant to be very much inclusive, but it's because I want to make sure that we don't overextend in our early releases so we can solve for problems we didn't even know would exist when it comes to shipping or whatever. Um, so we're going to re- basically it's waitlist only. You can get on the waitlist. It'll tell you what what position you're in on the waitlist, and there are things you can do to improve your position on the waitlist. So on our first release will go out, and then there will be successive releases that basically move people up the waitlist. So it's think of it kind of as getting on a winery allocation list. But again, the point of that is not to be exclusive. It's just to make sure that we're justifying the money you spend on this, that you're going to get what you expect to get when you expect to get it in the right way. So we can scale appropriately and and make sure we can community build, not just be like, okay, you're on the list, but you're there, there's we don't have time to incorporate you in the community. Um, I really do think GoodSom is going to be a game changer. I mean, all, all the companies I have, uh, there's another one I'd even talk about, Swig Partners, but that's for import and distribution assistance for alcoholic brands. So if you're a winery or distillery or brewery, whatever, and you're looking for help getting into the US or you're domestic and you're looking to expand your distribution, we do that too. But everything about what I do is kind of different than the industry model for the benefit of the constituents that are taking advantage of that. So for the sake of GoodSom, it's really for consumers or anyone who loves wine. I really wanted to sort of write my love letter to the wine drinking community. Um, so, so yeah, get on that list. And uh, I, 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 there are going to be benefits for the early, the early subscribers. You know, once, once this thing scales in the way that I think it will, though, we're kind of have like a founders circle where there'll be some extra special things. And I'll tell you one of the things that's going to incorporate in good Psalm is the golden ticket bottle where once a month, a really high end bottle is going to be put in someone's random box. Like the instructions to my fulfillment partner, put this bottle in a box, 
and then mix it in with all the other boxes and whatever label goes on, it goes on it and whoever gets it, gets it. So we're, we'll do a little bit of a community build around that golden ticket bottle. And who knows, maybe if you get the golden ticket bottle, you get an exclusive invitation to the winery for you and your friends to have a money can't buy access experience with library wines and barrel tastings and things like that. You know, who knows, maybe that's on the horizon, but I'm telling you, good Sam is going to do things really differently uh, when it comes to wine clubs. Lastly, in shameless self-promotion land, the Smithsonian classes. Again, they were designed because most consumer classes are basically the seagull from the Little Mermaid. This is this and that is that. And you're basically living inside a boring tasting sheet for however long it is. My classes are a theme. So Friday was my March class. It was all about island wines and what makes wines from island special. What are the signatures that, you know, the salinity, the proximity bodies of water, volcanic soils. But what does that mean? And like, let's taste through them. We had some pretty kick-ass wines uh let's see february was a road trip around the iberian coast so it was all S spanish and portuguese wines april is a new york state of wine so all new york state wines may is uh austria june is germany Ooh, july august and september is the white hot italian summer so july <laughs> july is the abcs of italian wine so regions or varieties that start with those letters august is drink like an italian sommelier so indigenous varieties less common appellations and then uh september in honor of alba truffle season in piedmont is a deep exploration of piedmontese wines so um you can message me and i can give you the link or you can go on smithsonian associates website and search for my last name s-e-g-e-l-b-a-u-m and you'll see my all the classes that are on sale um and available but yeah if you want to participate i'll ship kits anywhere or you can pick them up in the dmv area in dc and uh the point of this is that you again community experience discovery that is smithsonian right there and that is a good song right there and there you have it folks i want to again thank eric sagelbaum from sommelier llc for coming onto the podcast and i'm rob lee saying that there's art culture and some fine wine in and around your neck of the woods you've just got to look for it